And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, December 18th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our web editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a cybersecurity focus turn software bills of materials into something more than a complicated compliance checkoff, plus how to get to the bottom of the hype about software bills of materials in the first place. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department is looking to its next steps in cloud computing. For instance, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is also planning a big commercial contract award next year. That was one of several developments discussed during the Defense Department's Intelligence Information Systems, or DOTUS, conference in Portland, Oregon last week. We get more now from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Cloud plans, what is the latest, Justin? Yeah, it's been just over a year since DOD awarded the big joint warfighting cloud capability contract to four of the major vendors, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Oracle. But John Sherman, DOD's chief information officer, says he's already looking at JWCC 2.0. We are, in calendar year 2024, going to start looking at the follow-on contract for JWCC. When we announce JWCC, it's a three-year base with two option years, and we're already into the one-year base of this. And we said all along in 24, in that that time frame, we're going to start looking at what comes next. And no, I don't have a date for the RFP or exactly when this is going to come out, but I will tell you we are firmly committed to multi-cloud, multi-vendor, and this is what we're going to be doing going forward. Again, that's DOD CIO John Sherman speaking at the DOTUS conference in Portland, Oregon last week. Just a reminder, the JWCC deal could be worth up to $9 billion over 10 years if DOD exercises all its options. But Sherman's comments make clear that DOD is not just resting on, on that contract as the future for cloud at DOD. And DOD is using cloud in a variety of ways already and has been for a number of years What did they say that this means for how they plan to use the cloud in the next few years? Yeah, well, JWCC has really been about centralizing and rationalizing all those different cloud services across the department that the military services and agencies have been working on for several years now. And then there's also this push to extend cloud services to the tactical edge, or in other words, extend that connectivity beyond the United States to military units that are operating all over the world. The Defense Information Systems Agency in particular has recently been working on something called the Joint Operational Edge, or Joe Cloud. Sherman calls it a lily pad capability that connects U.S.-based networks to areas like units in the Pacific Ocean areas. And Sherman says they're going to move out on more of those in the future. So that's kind of where DOD is looking these days when it comes to cloud. And were you hearing from the cloud people or basically the CIO types of folks looking at this out at DOTUS? These are the CIO types of folks looking at this out at DOTUS. And of course, the the cloud is kind of laying the groundwork for DOD to take advantage of all these different capabilities folks are talking about, like artificial intelligence. And we heard a lot about that out there as well. In addition to AI, you know, user experience has been a big topic for DOD recently. And one bit of news that came out of DOTUS was DOD has named a head of its new user experience portfolio management office. His name is Savan Kong. He uh, previously served at the Defense Digital Service. And his office, the UX office, is really intended to address those 
fix our computers issues that came out at the Pentagon earlier this year, all this outdated, slow technology that really hampers the workforce. Sherman says his office will soon issue some guidance on that point. Now, I know it's not all about hardware. It's about software, too, and the image on the device and everything else. But having stuff that is more than a few years old isn't going to cut it anymore. And we've all seen the horror stories about the hardware that's way too old. And it's not only the endpoints. It's stuff like routers and switches. But we're going to start working on this with the military departments and services and others. We've got to do better than we've been doing in terms of the tech refresh. And hardware business development people take notice there. Also, we mentioned the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. They made some news at DOTUS. Tell us more about that one. Yeah, NGA plans to launch a competition for commercial geoint data services this January. Vice Admiral Frank Whitworth, director of NGA, says the agency will release a RFP for what's called the Luno A program. It plans to make awards to multiple vendors. Here's Whitworth at DOTUS. The goal is to enable NGA to do two things acquire commercial geoint object detections, and leverage industry analytics and automation. I wish I could tell you the amount, but let's just say it's significant. And probably classified, which is why I couldn't specify it further. But these are really important awards for NGA. Yeah, it continues this push where NGA is increasingly turning to commercial sources rather than highly sensitive government sources for the work it does, which is geospatial intelligence, of course. There was a draft RFP for this Luno A contract dropped earlier this year. It says, interestingly, that this is going to be entirely unclassified stuff that NGA is acquiring through this contract, and they're going to keep it on the unclassified networks rather than on the classified government networks. NGA has been buying a lot of commercial space imagery, of course, over the last decade or so. Now they're kind of pushing down into the commercial services and analysis and things like that to acquire commercially as well. So that's kind of the next step here for NGA, and these contracts should be a pretty big push. And I'm guessing this whole DOTUS conference didn't happen without somebody talking about artificial intelligence, and I'll bet the NGA had something to say about that too. Yeah, NGA is also moving forward with multiple AI initiatives. Whitworth talked about a new Frontier project under DOD's High Performance Computing Modernization Program. He says its aim is to develop, quote, the largest and most advanced AI model for Earth observation-based querying. It'll take about four years and millions of hours of computing time. So that's a big one. And then NGA has also taken over Project Maven from the Pentagon. And this is a big program of record now at NGA to use AI and machine learning to uh, analyze geoint data and actually do targeting and things like that. So there's a few different things with AI going on at uh, NGA. All right. So a pretty busy DOTUS. Lots of news. Yeah, yeah, it was a good conference. All right. Well, we're glad you're back. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Tom. And check out all of his DOTUS coverage at federalnewsradio.com. Still to come, how to get to the bottom of the hype about software bills of materials. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Biden administration's executive order on cybersecurity 
from three years ago now, alerted the uninitiated to the existence of software bills of material, SBOMs. The idea is, knowing all of the elements that make up a software package can help buyers better understand their cybersecurity holes. But can the SBOM also give hackers the blueprint they need? For some analysis, we turn to Endor Labs advisor and former federal cybersecurity manager, Chris Hughes. Chris, good to have you with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to be here. And you've seen this from both sides now, from industry and from government. And you testified recently before the House Subcommittee on Cybersecurity, IT, and Government Innovation. Gotta love those titles. And the idea that the SBOM is a kind of a two-way sluiceway. Tell us more about what you feel here. Yeah, so actually it wasn't my testimony, but it was a testimony from the Committee on Oversight and Accountability. Uh, it was in a talk titled Safeguarding the Federal Software Supply Chain. And it represented, you know, folks from private industry as well as some public sector organizations, you know, focused on government and procurement and things of that nature. And, you know, one of the things that were brought up is, you know, the SBOM serving as a roadmap for an attacker. And this is actually a topic that's been brought up around SBOMs in the past by groups like NTIA, CISA, and industry that has engaged them. And, you know, you know, obviously some merit to that. If you're disclosing exactly what's in the product, it can be vulnerable. But that said, it's not as if the government is asking for vendors to publicly disclose the SBOM and post it on a website, for example, or share it out for the world to see. Uh, they're asking for it to be delivered to the government. And obviously that's going to include safeguarding it, you know, having things like access control in place and properly storing it, you know, limiting who has access to it, encrypting it at rest, you know, things of that nature. And that said, you know, the reality is that attackers seem to be doing quite well already in terms of exploiting vulnerable products. Uh, what this does is it actually you know, addresses a longstanding information asymmetry between software suppliers and software consumers, in this case being the federal government, clarifying exactly what's in a product and what vulnerable components, for example, may be in a product that they're consuming and buying and purchasing. And it represents the government's attempt to use their large purchasing power, kind of push this systemic change across the ecosystem. Yeah, it strikes me there are really two pieces of the SBOM that could be vulnerable. One is those references to open source elements, which is what most software is at least partially made of. Some of it's mostly open source and with a little bit of window dressing to make it proprietary. And therefore, if it's open source, everybody knows what's in it anyway. And then there is the proprietary part that was coded by that vendor, which might be less known, but also exploitable. So does the SBOM kind of bring together two things that might have been better left separate? Uh, not necessarily. If I'm consuming something just like uh, in the medical industry or food or anything of that nature, I need to understand what's in it entirely, not just partially what's in it. I think what this is, is, you know, is some attempt in, in terms of the industry looking to push back on this requirement because transparency can be intimidating for some. Uh, if they have a lot of vulnerable components within their product and they haven't done their due diligence around secure software development, for example, you know, that level of transparency can be a bit intimidating and could be threatening in terms of wanting to disclose that to the customer. Uh, like you said, maybe it's largely open source just with a little bit of window dressing on it. Or maybe it involves a lot of vulnerable components that we haven't addressed and we kind of just focus on speed to market and getting out there and you know getting revenue, for example. Uh, so that transparency can be intimidating. And I think, like you said, uh, we need to see what's entirely in the product, not necessarily just a portion of it, because I need to know entirely what I'm consuming. And then if something happens, I need to be able to understand, you know, where do I have this product in my ecosystem? Where am I vulnerable? You know, for example, the Cyber Safety Review Board showed that some federal agencies spent tens of thousands of hours just trying to find where they had Log4j because they didn't really understand within their ecosystem, you know, whether proprietary products, you know, open source software, things of that nature, where they have these components in the enterprise. Uh, so we need this level of transparency and visibility. Which also points to the fact that the big breaches, whether it's Log4j or something that Microsoft puts out on Patch Tuesdays for its own proprietary software, 
everybody gets hit, both open source and proprietary, with some regularity. Yeah, that's spot on. I think that, honestly, there's been a bit of an overemphasis on open source software. Not that it's inherently bad. We do need to understand our consumption and use of open source software. But if you look at the past year, for example, there's been no shortage of breaches and incidents impacting some of the largest, most capable software providers, you know, the Microsofts, the Octas, and, you know, continue to name names, you know, whether it's open source components they were using or their products themselves that got hacked or breached or caused an incident of some sort, and many of which included impacting you know, several federal agencies. Uh, so the software supply chain is much bigger than just open source. It includes all products and all suppliers. We're speaking with Chris Hughes. He's chief security advisor at Endor Labs and a former federal cybersecurity practitioner in both civilian and DOD agencies. Therefore, what's the best way to operationalize your use of an S-bomb? You mentioned first you have to get it, and then second you have to make sure that it's protected and not just let out to the public because you have it as you mentioned at the top, then what? How do you make use of it in a way that really enhances cybersecurity? Yeah, I think uh, this is actually a very critical question, and this is where the testimony raised some questions that do have some merit, is you're trying to avoid this becoming a compliance checkbox exercise of, yes, I have this document, I just file it away, stuff it in a cabinet drawer somewhere, never look at it again. It has to be actually made actionable. Uh, so CISA, for example, has put out some guidance on operationalizing SBOMs, and we're seeing industry do the same, you know, organizations like uh, OWASP or the Linux Foundation, for example. So you need to take these artifacts and actually start to integrate them into your broader cybersecurity supply chain risk management program, your vulnerability management program, integrated into activities like procurement and acquisitions. Uh, so you have to take these things, actually enrich them with vulnerability intelligence, understand you know, what you're consuming, where it exists, and then how do you actually take action on that, whether it's working with suppliers to kind of get vulnerabilities addressed and remediated, or being better prepared for things like incident response, if there is another log4j, and there will be at some time, I'm sure, as well as you know, integrating into things like procurement and acquisitions so that you can make more risk-informed decisions on the products you buy. It sounds like a big exercise, and cybersecurity is already a big exercise. Is this something that can be delivered as a service, say, by a vendor, a managed service vendor, to do SBOM analysis for you? It is, yeah. And anyone who's been to the large, you know, kind of uh, cybersecurity events in the past year or two, you know, RSA, Black Hat, things of that nature, you'll find no shortage of innovative software supply chain vendors, you know, being driven by venture capital and, you know, things across the ecosystem. They're providing these platforms that can take SBOMs, enrich them, you know, start to kind of provide that centralized hub for you to use across the enterprise. So there's proprietary solutions coming to the market. There's obviously some open source software solutions and platforms that can be leveraged for this purpose. And you can integrate these in things like, you know, CICD pipelines. Uh, so there's a lot of capabilities out there. It's just much like any other kind of cybersecurity initiative like Zero Trust, it's a journey. So organizations just have to make that first step, you know, kind of iterate on that and keep addressing gaps and maturing. And so far as I can tell, the government hasn't quite made the bridge between its own imposed requirement to use S-bombs, to obtain S-bombs and use them, and the efforts that it is imposing on industry to have compliance and evidence of cybersecurity good practice the uh, nascent CMMC program. There's also new CISA guidance and so forth for the civilian side. But so far, nobody's asked industry to have S-bombs and provide proof of those S-bombs to the government. Sounds like that could be next, though. Oh, yeah, that's definitely coming. You know, if you look at the memos from Office of Management and Budget that came out of Cybersecurity Executive Order OMB 2218 and 2316, for example, those specifically call on industry to start providing self-attestation of following things like NIST Secure Software Development Framework and potentially providing S-bombs in addition to those self-attestations. But, you know, there is one uncomfortable aspect of that is in those memos, 
it refers to proprietary software and products, but it kind of excludes government-developed software, for example, from these same kind of requirements. It's a bit of, uh, you know, we need to eat our own dog food. And if we're going to push industry to do these kind of activities, we need to be ensuring that we're doing them as well. Because malicious actors, they're going to target everything, whether it's developed by the government and contracts, uh, you know, support or developed by proprietary software vendors. And it also builds trust with the industry when we do what we're asking them to do themselves. Yeah, safe to say that even in those instances where the government does develop its own software, and that's kind of returned, not to the degree that maybe it was in the 70s and 80s, but it's somewhat back now, that, yeah, they're also using open source plus their own coding, and it looks just like industry, and therefore, as you say, yeah, S-bomb from you folks too, and good practice. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, not only does it build trust, but, you know, if we're going to talk about taking these artifacts and operationalizing them, you know, making them actionable and using them to drive down risk, uh, what better way to do it than do it internally in our own development practices, our own software development activities, you know, uh, you know, kind of practice and muscle memory with, you know, producing these artifacts, integrating them into our broader cybersecurity uh, activities and programs and maturing that aspect of it so that when we do produce policy or requirements on the industry, it's kind of grounded in practical experience rather than just kind of theoreticals or, you know, what would be nice to have. We have experience with doing these things. Chris Hughes is Chief Security Advisor at Endor Labs and a former federal cybersecurity practitioner himself. I guess you were in the Air Force, you were at the GSA, anywhere else? Yeah, I actually spent uh, four years in the Air Force doing cybersecurity, went from there to the Navy for about four and a half years uh, at an organization called NIWIC Atlantic and doing cloud security and DevSecOps, and then went to GSA on a part of the FedRAMP team there, uh, reviewing cloud services. And I've you know been around the government uh, contracting space for quite a bit, working with both DOD and federal civilian agencies as well. All right. Well, we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, hear those drum beats, their predictions of a January government shutdown. But first, turn software bills of material into something more than a compliance checkoff. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. More organizations worried about cybersecurity are turning to software bills of material. Getting them from software suppliers as a matter of compliance is one thing. Gaining real cybersecurity intelligence from them, that's another. For advice, we turn to the general manager of the Open Source Security Foundation, Amkar Arasaratnam. Mr. Arasaratnam, good to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Really excited to talk to you today. And just briefly, tell us about the Open Source Security Foundation itself. There are so many like-sounding cybersecurity nonprofit groups all doing great work, but they all have a little slightly different flavor. The Open Source Security Foundation, or the OpenSSF as we call it colloquially, has been around, gosh, about three years now. And we believe that the security of open source software is a joint collaboration between the public sector private sector, and the community. And we act as agents to help coordinate those entities. So it started off, as I mentioned, about three years ago, just before Log4j or Log4Shell, if you want to go by the exploit name, and really spun into action after that. We focused on a variety of areas to do with supply chain security, building better security into open source, my background, I worked in the corporate landscape for about 25 years before coming over here, although I've frequently used open source. And unlike a corporate environment where when you're developing software, 
you may have a single point of change in which you can say, hey, we need to do better in this by using a better secure software development lifecycle. In open source, you really don't have that opportunity. It's inherently bottoms up. It's distributed. Everyone has their own way of doing things. So it's quite an interesting challenge to try and determine how best to affect better security in open source. But the other side of it is also incredibly rewarding in that if you positively affect an open source project that's broadly used, you have literally improved the security attributes for billions of people. Open source software is used everywhere from cell phones to satellites to your personal computer. So it's equally a challenging as well as rewarding environment to work in. And for federal agencies in particular that have always been huge consumers of software, it seems like the trend has shifted to the point where most of what they buy, software as a service, acquired software that they operate, whatever the case might be, or even have programmed by you know systems integrators and so forth, nevertheless is mostly open source in content. It's almost like when you build a house. The carpenters don't cut door frames anymore. You buy the whole frame and door and hinges and lock set is one piece. So every house has the same doors. Are we to that point now where most software is open source? That's right. We believe about 90% of shipping software today is open source software. And that's been through the development environment that the developer has linked a common library such as OpenSSL, or Log4j, or what you may have, or it could be that it's running on an open source stack like Kubernetes, but you're 100% correct. And the advantage of this is software engineers don't need to reinvent the wheel. Software engineers can focus on adding value by leveraging these existing packages with some phenomenal attributes and really focus on what's unique about the software they're developing. The other side of this coin, however, is when there are pervasive issues with the security of particular open source packages, as we saw with Log4j, the blast radius is quite big. And being mindful as to how to manage the risks associated with consumption of these packages has been an area of focus for us. We've also worked, as I mentioned earlier, in conjunction with public sector here domestically. So with the Office of the National Cyber Director, ONCD, with CISA, with DARPA, with many of our colleagues in the federal government. In fact, we are strong proponents of the recent CISA open source software security roadmap that they put out, which reasons over not only how our agencies and critical infrastructure should be consuming open source, but also how they can contribute back. One of the key characteristics of open source is that it is free for everyone to consume, but there's also a community aspect or expectation that improvements are committed back to the community. So it's really encouraging to see the way that this administration has gone forward in terms of embracing open source and making it more secure. We're speaking with Omkar Arasaratnam. He is general manager of the Open Source Security Foundation, and that gets us to the software bill of materials question. Then when you obtain one, and under presidential executive orders, agencies are required to do this, and as you have pointed out publicly, more and more private organizations are demanding S-bombs from their suppliers. Basically, you're getting a library of Legos, you might say, to make an analogy. And so how can you operationalize that S-bomb in a way to enhance cybersecurity and not just make it something, well, 
we promised we would get one, and here it is, a big digital document that nobody reads? That's a great question. I'll reflect back on a couple of things. One, back in September, we had a great meeting under the request of Ms. Newberger from the National Security Council to assemble a group of public sector and private sector leaders in order to establish a bit of a beachhead as to how we were going to continue to improve the security of open source software. One of the topics that came up as an outcome of that meeting was a strong focus on how to operationalize SBOMs. Now, I'm going to say something controversial. SBOMs on their own do not afford any security attribute. They don't make security better on their own. They only make security better once you use them in ways that are beneficial to operational security or the security engineering of the products you build. Now, the precondition to that is establishing a standard format, right? So if you're going to be writing down all these things in a software bill of material, ideally you want them to be machine readable. You want to be able to draw references to this data in order to let the computers do what they do well, which is process data. So you may choose a format like SPDX, which is a SBOM format hosted within the Linux Foundation. The next aspect to poorly quote Shakespeare is what is in a name. And CISA recently completed their request for comment on software naming standardization. Why is this important? Well, unfortunately today, we name our software packages in a litany of different ways. So it could be OpenSSL, it could be OpenSSL 3.2, it could be Red Hat slash OpenSSL 3.2. And while these kind of considerations may be trivial, coming up with a canonical naming standard allows us to make better programmatic decisions. Now, how can SBOMs be used in production? Well, the next time there's a vulnerability, and I believe there was recently, last week, an Apache Struts vulnerability that came out. And if Apache Struts sound familiar, it was the package whose vulnerability led to the exploit of Equifax a few years ago. So another big bad vulnerability with Apache Struts came out last week. In an ideal state, once you have all these SBOMs in a native format like SPDX, and once you're using a consistent naming format, you should be able to go through and very quickly identify all the instances of Apache Struts within your organization, and then use that information combined with other asset inventory information like Is this an internet-facing server, or is this a development server behind a firewall? In order to reason over how quickly you need to address the vulnerability and what the most effective way of addressing it is, you may find that the Apache Struts instance that you're for a particular entry in your inventory may belong to a vendor system where you have to go wait for the vendor to update their build. And that will fork down a different road than if this is in-house developed software running on an Apache Strut server that you have the opportunity to upgrade yourself. Or you could lean on that vendor, I suppose, and say, hey, fix this. We found something you may not have known about. And that naming convention, that's kind of one of the oldest challenges in information technology in some sense. I remember many years ago when the Pentagon was trying to come up with common language for, you know, the software that it had and data elements, I think it was. So my question then is, I'm getting a sense of aroma coming from the kitchen here, and that is artificial intelligence as applied to the SBOM and to the cyber 
question in general. Can you comment on that one? Absolutely. Let me add one more plug for some of the work we're doing around SBOMs. We have three big annual events at the Linux Foundation, Open Source Summit North America, Open Source Summit Europe, and Open Source Summit Japan. We just got back from Japan. North America's next. It'll be in Seattle. In Seattle, we intend on doing a tabletop exercise where we pretend that a new vulnerability has come out. And then using tools like SBOMs, we identify the optimal path for people to take in order to respond to the incident. Things like tabletop exercises aren't novel. We've been doing them for years, whether it be in the military or in financial sector. But it's about democratizing access to these kind of runbooks. So smaller organizations may benefit from that as well. Look for that coming out in the spring. Now, as it comes to AI, two ways that I'm thinking about AI and the foundation's thinking about AI. On one hand, I believe it was, shucks, I forget who it was now. There was recently a publication on the security of AI. I believe it was actually from GCHQ in the UK. It was in conjunction with NSA and some of our federal friends as well. It cited that using things like SBOMs to identify the composition of these different machine learning models would be critical. As an engineer, there's two things that we like, consistency and determinism. Consistency meaning the same input should give the same output. Determinism meaning that the algorithm will only provide one path out rather than it varying. Ensuring that we understand how these very complex large language models work, and then we can correct them when they go awry, I think is going to be critical to the maturation of large language models and generative artificial intelligence going forward. It sounds like then that the cybersecurity ultimate activity in any organization, including a federal agency, is becoming much more of a team exercise because of the different disciplines you need to impinge on the S-bomb and, and just general analysis of what you got running in your systems. Absolutely. I think the other area that I'm really excited about, applying artificial intelligence, large language models, generative AI too, is in how to tackle this vexing problem of open source software security. As I mentioned earlier, unlike normal enterprise software development, there isn't a single software development lifecycle that you can turn to, insert a security check, and make everything better. Instead, open source maintainers have to comb over thousands of pull requests, which are contributions from the community, prior to incorporating them into their code base. And there just isn't an efficient way of doing it. One of the areas that we'd like to see further work and application of technologies like artificial intelligence is in making this easier. So we're extremely excited to partner with DARPA on the AI Cyber Challenge, or AIXCC. My friend and colleague, Perry Adams, just did a live stream about this yesterday. It's a two-year DARPA challenge, and the challenge is to address large classes of open source software security issues using large language models. The idea being to turn the computer and the artificial intelligence loose on all this open source software and get the large language model to automatically generate secure code where there may be insecure code. Well, it sounds like a tall order, and it's going to produce a lot of output. We're going to have to leave it there. Amkar Arasaratnam is General Manager of the Open Source Security Foundation. Thank you so much. 
It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, hear those drum beats? They're predictions of a January government shutdown. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. They somehow cobbled together two consecutive continuing resolutions. Now members of Congress aren't sure what will happen when the current one expires. At least one Democrat in leadership predicts a shutdown next month. More now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And yes, nothing seems to be able to escape the drumbeat of shutdown, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. You would think by the end of this year, we wouldn't necessarily have to be talking about a shutdown since they already have a continuing resolution in place. But as you pointed out, we have these deadlines coming up in January. And I talked at length with former House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, who's been through many of these shutdown showdowns over the years. And he is very concerned about the possibility of a shutdown in January. I think there's more than a potential. I think it may be more likely than less likely that we would shut down the government. Because first of all, the speaker, this brand new speaker, has said he's not going to do any more continuing resolutions. Sadly, they have set up a process which makes it very, very difficult to reach consensus in such a short time. And Hoyer is pointing out that the House is not scheduled to return until January 9th. The first of two deadlines for funds to run out is the 19th. And he points out that with the travel and everything else, that really that only leaves them about six legislative days to get to an agreement. And if a short-term spending bill is off the table, that could present real problems. Keep in mind that the House hasn't been able to agree on most of the appropriations bills for nearly a year, much less a few days. Uh, Then there's also a second deadline from that laddered CR as you talked about, uh, that was previously approved, and that's on February 2nd. So big challenges ahead, especially for the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who was originally given some leeway after succeeding former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But the House Freedom Caucus and the hardliners aren't likely to give him much flexibility, I don't think, especially since their majority has shrunk with the departure of McCarthy and the expulsion of George Santos. Now you could get down to two or maybe three votes that the Republicans could lose, depending on who's absent. So it's going to be an even thinner margin in 2024, much less this year. But in this case, then the shutdown would be more the result of stasis and schedule than for actually confronting the disagreements. Right, exactly. And really, uh, many people point out, and this is Democrats as well as Republicans point out, there really hasn't been any major change in the makeup or the way that House Republicans are looking at these issues. So, yes, there was a little bit of honeymoon period here for Speaker Mike Johnson, but all of these issues still are going to come back to roost in January. And I just don't see, and Steny Hoyer obviously doesn't see, and many others don't see, how they are going to resolve these issues in just a matter of days. Whatever happened to that whole gambit of trying to get the regular appropriations legislation pieces done, I think that dates back to the McCarthy speaker days. Right. That really just totally fell apart. I mean, it was amazing. We heard a drumbeat day after day where House Republicans say, we have to get these appropriations bills passed. We want to get all 12 of them passed before the end of the year. Yes. Did they pass some of them? They did. But they basically went for the low-hanging fruit, the easier ones to pass. And then when it became clear that they couldn't even get the votes to pass the rule to get to the legislation on the floor, they just kind of put them all on the 
shelf. And so it was a really odd kind of a legislative twilight zone here over the last few weeks where, you know, they're moving toward the end of the year. We're used, used to this big push and finally getting into an omnibus, which they avoided this year. But really, the last couple of weeks have been kind of anticlimactic. Other than passing the National Defense Authorization Act, there wasn't really a lot of major legislative action. And within this twilight zone, you also have lots of zombies walking around. (laughs) I mean, they did give the heave-ho to George Santos, but lots of members have already announced their departure from Congress, and there's still another year of legislation before the election. Right. Now, of course, there's always ebb and flow with members of uh, Congress leaving. But really, over the last several weeks, we've had a lot of people heading out the doors. Uh, More than 30 lawmakers from the House have either said they're retiring or they're going to another job or they're trying to run for another public office. Maybe it's the U.S. Senate or somewhere else. And I asked Steny Hoyer about that. And he said, well, yes, you do get a lot of people leaving. Obviously, he's somebody who's been here a long time. But there's just this frustration that absolutely nothing can get done. And even among the renegade conservative Republicans in the House, if you ask them, do you think this was a productive uh, legislative session? You know, usually there's a spin on it, but several of them said, no, absolutely not. They're frustrated. They didn't think that they got anything done. So then you also add these people that are more moderate, that have been here a long time, that are used to at least over some point of time getting into these uh, coalitions where they could actually compromise on legislation. That's really not happening very much anymore. So all of this is really adding up to frustration and causing many of these lawmakers to leave. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He is WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent. And then you've got, I guess, to some it's a sideshow, to some it's an important matter. And that is the increase in intensity of looking at President Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, and this whole inquiry. And now, of course, you say, as you point out, the House is leaving for weeks now. So will that have any gravitational pull, I guess, when they do return? I think it'll have a huge gravitational pull because a lot of Democrats are totally frustrated by the fact that this impeachment inquiry, they just voted on it uh, last week to formally move it ahead. And, um, you know, Democrats have been saying this for a long time. The White House has been saying it, that there really is nothing specifically to tie President Biden to his son. Now, does his son have a lot of legal problems? Absolutely. Has he admitted to a ton of problems uh, from everything for paying for escort services to strippers, a lot of terrible things? And Democrats you know, don't want to talk about that, but they acknowledge, and, and Hunter Biden himself has acknowledged these problems. But the fact that there is just basically a, a search for more smoke and potentially fire with this impeachment inquiry is going to really, I think, royal things uh, from the just basic legislative standpoint of trying to get an agreement on some of the things that we just talked about, about basically getting the government to keep running, because I think it's going to cause some Democrats to dig in, and they're not going to be perhaps as willing to go across the aisle, as we've seen in the past year, where it literally did take uh, Democrats to join Republicans to get some of the legislation passed. So this is definitely going to be a big problem, both politically, obviously, for President Biden heading, heading into an election year, but I think it's also going to throw sand into the gears of the legislative process. Right. And they also have to deal with foreign policy questions, you know, aid to Israel and to Ukraine. And those that's all up in limbo now, too, then. 
Right. And, you know, this is an issue that uh, immigration is something that they've been trying to figure out some kind of solution to these asylum issues and various issues related to immigration for literally 15 years. And now you see them trying to do this in a matter of days. Once again, does that sound familiar? Uh, now, there has been uh, pretty good progress on some of these discrete issues. Uh, Republicans basically want to change the expulsion authority. Uh, they want to bring back a form of what's known as Title 42, uh, basically to figure out a way to effectively shut down the, the border for a while. And there's a disagreement over what the level should be of how many people are coming in. But it's a it's a huge problem. And, you know, what's interesting is the majority of Republicans, particularly in the Senate, actually strongly support Ukraine aid as well as Israel aid. But because of this issue related to the border and the fact that Republicans feel this is the one time that they can get some leverage, it just has caused everything to to grind to a, not to a total halt, but uh, it is interesting that the Senate is back in session this week, but there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not any of this aid can actually get passed before the end of the year. And they did get, that is, both houses got the National Defense Authorization Act out of the way, so that something they can feather their cap with. And then there's a couple of details, like the new Social Security Administrator, that agency hasn't had a confirmed administrator, and very noticeably so, for a long time. Right. So we'll get uh, a vote on former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley, who looks like is going to get confirmed. And that will be another one of the things that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will do effectively to keep the Senate in session. They will you know, take up some nominations. They still have some loose ends here and there that are more kind of on the administrative side. So that will keep the Senate in session so that these negotiations uh, on the Republican and Democratic side, and now the White House is becoming more involved in these border issues. They want to just at least grind away, and, and they're hoping that they can reach some type of framework agreement. But as you well know, even if you get that agreement, then you have to put it into legislative text. You have to set up the cloture votes and all of that, and that takes time. And to be honest, a lot of Republicans in the House and a lot of Democrats as well actually have just said the House is not coming back, that they are not coming back until January. So even if there were some kind of political miracle and the Senate got to a point where there could be a vote on this, it's, again, really doubtful that anything could happen on it before the end of the year. So I think that issue is going to be pushed into the following year. So in the meantime, though, don't turn off the burner under the Navy bean soup <laughs> in the Dirksen cafeteria. Absolutely. Keep that going because we need some sustenance here. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thank so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Artificial intelligence development in the Defense Department has been moving along quickly for a while now. Policy is starting to catch up after initial guidance coming out last summer, especially as DOD agencies explore large language generative AI models. And just last week, Air Force Chief Information Officer Venice Goodwine announced a new policy for generative AI. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has the details. And Anastasia, tell us about this new AI policy at the Air Force. Policies and regulations on AI are being written across the military services. And we know that Air Force wants to use generative AI. It's starting to use AI in a lot of different ways. It has been. For example, it uses AI for resource allocation or to help predict how 
a decision can reshape its program or budget. The new policy that Benesket Wine announced yesterday says, yes, Air Force wants to use commercial generative AI platforms. And it basically aims to set guardrails for the service to test and experiment with generative artificial intelligence. She said she created an innovation zone within the Air Force's Office 365 environment specifically because that environment is already safe to use. Within that environment, it's already aisle five and it's safe. So, yes, I have done that and I've told the airmen and the guardians that you can come here and you can practice in my innovation um, environment with Gen AI. Got it. Because the one thing that we are very cautious of, and you saw this, those that didn't understand the technology, what happened? They put code out there and now that code ended up training a model. We don't want to do that. So we're figuring out ways, how do we really just within our own confines of our own data, then use this technology? Again, that was Venice Wine. And of course, there are going to be cultural challenges to this. So she's encouraging everyone to educate themselves and to figure out how the technology actually works. Please do not use other than IL2 public data in these Gen AI tools. Please go take this AI training because I need you to understand the technology before you start to use it. And the question comes up, since she sounds pretty passionate about all of this, is how widely is the Air Force in particular using artificial intelligence? The military has a lot of AI use cases. It uses the technology to optimize equipment maintenance, for example. The technology is used for decision-making when analysts use AI to scan a ton of information, identify patterns, and make decisions. But for the Air Force, they're using it in different ways. They're using it to predict how a decision could reshape a particular program or budget. And I'm just giving an example. In a context of an aircraft, an AI-enabled resource allocation platform could figure out the cost of a particular decision and the consequences it would have on personnel, aircraft availability, etc. And just another example, the technology is a pillar to the advanced battle management system. That is um, Air Force's contribution to JADC2, or Join All Domain Command and Control Framework. It connects military assets across space, air, land, sea, and cyber domains, and allows warfighters to share data from the field a lot faster. What Air Force is doing, um, it's integrating a variety of air defense data sources to support this particular framework. So that's just one of the use cases how the Air Force is using it. And here's what Goodwine has to say about it. We have 44 different AI today projects across the DAF today. So it's not that we're not using AI. So please um, understand that. The other thing is we're participating in Task Force Lima with the DOD as well, where we have use cases there as well. So we are using AI and exploring with Gen AI, but we need to just put some guardrails around that. So Air Force and Space Force. Yeah, so she said 44 projects going on in the Air Force. That's a pretty precise number. Sounds like they've got a good handle on what's going on. Who knows what they don't know about? It's a big place, Mm -hmm. and they're all over the place. What about the other services? What do we know there in terms of the quantities of projects? There are many use cases. For example, the intelligence community and some combatant commands. Combatant commands are responsible for a particular region. For example, 
they're using AI to go through a lot of classified and unclassified data to identify patterns of behavior and scenarios of how international events can unfold. But again, there are so many use cases. AI-powered cybersecurity systems, they quickly detect and neutralize cyber attacks which protects military infrastructure and networks. And we can go over the specific use cases in the future, but I just want to mention that while AI technology can make a lot of service members' lives a lot easier, it's going to be a long process, especially when it comes to adopting the technology at scale. The government is still building the infrastructure needed to support all of this. The funding is always an issue. And of course, the Pentagon is still building up testing and evaluation processes and platforms to make sure that AI is integrated safely and securely. It takes the Army 15 years to develop and field a new pistol. So you can imagine what some of these high technology tools really take to get part of the infrastructure and part of the daily use. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.